This is a Power 98.7 podcast. Now we're talking. Subscribe to Power 98.7 podcasts in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. There's more on power987.co.za. We stay with issues international, and I think there have been many, many shifts um, in how the world is constructed that has raised questions around what is the world order? Who are the, the global police, shall we call it that? That used to be a term when I was a student of international uh, affairs. Um, what are the changing polarities from a world dominated maybe by one or two countries or one country and a big regional bloc in the European Union, um, the rise of China, to different centers of power shifting? And they all coexist, by the way. And even definitions of that power and countries that, because of their size, um, their scale economically um, and uh, they are the size of their defense forces, the size of their economies, are assumed to be natural leaders of the world. Some positions you don't take on. People just look at you and say, you have the resources to adjudicate in this conflict, therefore you should. And that's how global leadership sort of emerges. But how is this changing and what is this new world order? We saw the expansion of BRICS um, or the confirmation of the expansion of BRICS after South Africa hosted the summit in August of last year, creating another sphere of influence. Uh, but the influence and the power will be determined by the ability to mobilize resources in all these BRICS nations to then solve for different uh, international crit- uh, crises or to create new centers of economic activity, uh, growth, um, and yeah, what we call a GDP. So all of those things is what comes into play. And with geopolitics increasingly more fraught and complicated, um, yeah, it creates complications around definitions of the newness of this world order because some of the old school players like Russia are players in the formation of a new world order. And yet they were intrinsically power brokers in the bipolar world of the Cold War, uh, but increasingly uh, coming to the fore in this multipolar world as well. But don't take my word for it. Patrick Bond is a distinguished political economist and professor of sociology at the University of Johannesburg. Good morning and Happy New Year, Prof. Thank you very, very much for having me, Lerato. Good uh, uh, wishes to your Thank listeners you. too. Thank you. Okay, so what do we mean by a new world order? And are we witnessing the making of a new world order? Well, it's a term that came actually from the uh, early 1990s. If you recall, uh, Ronald Reagan, the U.S. president, had contributed to uh, increasing military spending in the United States. And uh, the Soviet Union couldn't keep up. And so therefore, um, his successor, Reagan's successor, George H.W. Bush, the father of the early 2000s, President Bush, he declared a new world order. And that was the term for U.S. centricity with the Soviet Union collapsing and splitting up. And um, all of the satellite states um, and allied uh, countries 
having to reconfigure and many of them became free market in orientation. Think of Mozambique. And of course, that also allowed FW de Klerk in South Africa to say, well, we don't really have a threat of a communist takeover. So in a way, that new world order, as it uh, emerged in the initial manifestation, was one of extreme arrogance for mm -hmm. a, a Washington consensus. And yes. the U.S. State Department line was this will combine free economics and free politics. And that was the sort of sense that liberalism, as one of their intellectuals put it, uh, was the end of history. Now, of course, uh, by 2008, that model crashed with the world financial collapse and all of the geopolitical tensions. Russia had such a terrible time coming out of a, a decrepit uh, Stalinist bureaucracy mm. and having uh, you know, a huge rise in uh, alcoholism and a decline in life expectancy and a deindustrialization. So it was really with the 2000s that Vladimir Putin, as you say, pulled together with uh, the Chinese leadership, um, the sense that a BRICS might be an alternative way. And by 2010, they'd invited South Africa to Brazil, Russia, India, mm -hmm. China. And we've seen that, uh, let's say, at least rhetorical uh, playing of one versus the other ever okay. since. So it does seem like a bipolar Cold War all over again, sometimes quite hot. All right. So there are there's a historicity to the term New World Order. And effectively, by 1989-1990 and the form of fall of the Berlin Wall and the crumbling of the Soviet republics, it really centered the world around one dominant uh, international force, the United States. And so how world economics uh, was shaped, how discussions about global interaction and engagement were shaped were based on an enforced consensus. I'm going to say that. I don't know if it was voluntary for most people to go into it. A Washington consensus, a Washington worldview founded on liberalism and the economics of laissez-faire neoliberalism also being the programs that countries adopted, semi-free markets uh, in their nations and a different kind of Western-style democracy. Until 2009, things changed with a global recession and people say perhaps the system is not working. And then BRICS emerges as perhaps one of the replacements of that system. Have I understood what you're saying? Yes, but I should quickly say I'm of the view that BRICS wasn't really an alternative, but in some ways an amplifier of some of the more extreme versions. For example, in the World Bank, the IMF, the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, as we saw last month in Dubai, uh, the World Trade Organization, we didn't see the BRICS coming to the multilateral table to do anything particularly different. And its corporates, uh, including South African corporates, have been actually part of the problem of extreme predatory extractive uh, economic activity at home, but also in the neighborhood. So I would not view the BRICS ultimately, even though there's rhetoric to that effect, as an alternative, but instead as an amplifier of some of the worst tendencies, which now this week, the World Economic Forum, which is the Western mm -hmm. corporate elites and, and their allied governments, they're really unable to grapple with because things have gone so far out of hand, whether pandemics or artificial intelligence and uh, eco-catastrophes and geopolitical tensions and inequality, those big five of the problems, they're obviously incapable now of, of dealing with from you know, a top-down World Economic Forum or BRICS perspective. You've said an interesting thing here, which is on paper, BRICS in its rhetoric is suggesting that it's a, it's a sort of an alternative. But when you look at the practice, there are 
economic models, how their corporates behave, the extractive uh, industries that they uh, build a lot of their economic value on. It's just simply doing the same thing, but the same wine in new bottles. So it's not actually offering something brand new. It's actually entrenching an existing system, but just putting new faces to it. Yes, they have a term the global value chain or globalization. In other words, that the um, micro processes that, for example, mean a mine in uh, Zimbabwe um, would have been, you know, say De Beers, diamonds in Morangi on the east side, uh, pulling them out and then processing them through uh, a Western controlled central selling organization. Now that's being done by a Chinese military related company called Anjin in league with Zimbabwe generals. Things have shifted. The diamonds will go to some rich person in London or New York <laughs> to wear on their ring. Mm. But basically the, the uh, global value chain entails for some of the peripheral countries or peripheral parts of South Africa under development. And that's our dilemma. And we, we began to see a break from that last uh, Thursday, I think, in Hague, when uh, the South African team went out and said, actually, this new world order in which genocide is being uh, widely accepted by Western elites and, and indeed by some of the new BRICS plus members, let's not forget Egypt and Saudi Arabia and UAE are very close to Israel and uh, they don't necessarily like the Palestinians and they're a bit uncomfortable, obviously, now, but that sort of Western sub-imperial alliance that Israel with uh, UAE, Egypt and Saudi Arabia have enjoyed, that's now being questioned by another BRICS member, South Africa, mm. speaking, I think, on behalf of a civilized world mm. of global civil society that's unhappy, seeing you know little children being killed mm. en masse mm. as if they were somehow Hamas supporters. Yeah, we can talk about that in a moment. I just want to go back to this concept of global value chains, because obviously um, BRICS, which is just over 10 years old, uh, cannot instinctively replace a system that's more than 400 years old in terms of how wealth has been accumulated to the West, how resources have been extracted from some emerging markets and many of them in Africa, frontier markets, to create wealth uh, for the economies of the West and locate the value in Wall Street or the city of London or Frankfurt uh, or increasingly even uh, places like uh, Melbourne uh, and Sydney, Australia, even Hong Kong. So you can't just recreate the world. But when you hear talk of moving global value chains and supplies in and amongst the BRICS nations, where South Africa says we've got mineral resources, China's got the factories, uh, other BRICS nations have the pool of labor. We can produce in a triangulated form and keep the money here. And then Brazil says, and on top of that, we can trade outside of the dollar. Aren't those the building blocks of something new? They would be, and certainly a de-dollarization that uh, President Lula and his uh, predecessor and successor, um, Dilma Rousseff, who's head of the BRICS Bank, they've had talk-left rhetoric. The walk-right uh, re-dollarization, though, is, is fairly evident. And in August, we had a great disappointment that uh, Sim Chabalala, the head of Standard Bank, marched out uh, on the stage of the BRICS Business Forum and said, forget it, guys, we're just not going to do de-dollarization. We're too tied into the Western dollar. That was one disappointment, but it gets to the next point you're very correctly making, that there could be a break from a value chain which goes to the very top. Two things at the top, intellectual property, 
and financing. And those are typically uh, locked in by the lawyers who go to the World Trade Organization trade-related intellectual property system, and they lock in IP, and therefore they get royalties and the profits and dividends that you know, should be in Chinese factories, uh, you know, like Apple mm. and Foxconn, they go to Taiwan, Foxconn, and then they go to Seattle for, for Apple. And, and that's the flow, ultimately, of value at the top, mm. the other being financing. So it's still Western, you know, mostly New York, London, Tokyo, mm. Frankfurt banks that, that can take a, a slice out of that. Right. Now, could we do it differently? We tried uh, twice, once successfully, remember 2001, getting AIDS medicines off of intellectual property so that we could roll out generics. South Africa's life expectancy rose from 52 to 65. But secondly, the BRICS proved useless the second time. Do you remember in 2020 to 22, we needed to get COVID-19 vaccine and treatment intellectual property waivers? Well, the far right in Brazil had taken over, Jair Bolsonaro. They didn't support South Africa and India. Nor did China and Russia, who had their own vaccines, the Sputnik in Russia, mm. the Sinopharm and Sinovac. Mm. So we couldn't get unity in the BRICS at that most crucial point, Lerato, when we should have broken through and established the idea of a global public good. What I'm going to ask you to do after the break, uh, Professor Bond, is explain to us this notion of value, because that's what you're, that's what you are alluding to. And in fact, quite clearly saying it's fine if you've got the minerals. It's fine if if you've got the labor capability. It's even fine if you're China and you've got the factories. But if you do not have the intellectual property on the mobile phone or on the making of a vehicle or on the creation of a banking system, you don't have the value. And it's value that creates intrinsic wealth in the global financial system. And so for BRICS to work or any other formation, you not only need to have the labor pool, You not only need to have the resources, you need to be able to extract the value. In other words, you need to have the money that builds your own mines, beneficiates your own minerals and sets the prices on a market. And up until you can control that line, you don't really have the power to create wealth. I just want you to simplify it for us. Getting you what you need to know. Power Talk. Weekdays 9 a.m. to noon on Power 98.7. Yes, we're talking about the emergence of a new world order. Well, new world order 2.0 after we saw what was deemed the creation of a new world order in 1989-1990 with the fall of the uh, Soviet Union and the Berlin Wall. But another kind of world order predicated on uh, South-South cooperation or the emerging markets coming together, maybe in a formation like BRICS, maybe not. But how does it change the center of power in the world, whether we're talking political power and security or economic power? Professor Patrick Bond is explaining all to us now this morning. So, Professor Bond, if you could answer the question of value, how we create it. Well, you're absolutely on target by pointing to the two components, uh, that is uh, labor and the way it's applied, usually by a company. And usually you put uh, a managers and owners capital together with the workers and then the workers paid a fair bit, but not the entire amount. And the difference surplus value then goes to the manager and the, the owner to, to reinvest. And that's the way capitalism is sort of designed. Now, what capitalism gets um, is a free gift in a place like South Africa by 
taking non-renewable mineral resources, fossil fuels, out of the ground, deploying them. And then the big question for South Africa, does the labor get fairly compensated? And do uh, the society, not just us, but our future generations who should inherit some of that uh, mineral wealth, do they get properly compensated? South Africa's probably the best case of an answer, no, because of racism. Uh, first, you know, slavery with the Portuguese and the Dutch with their uh, 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 settler colonialism, Cecil Rhodes and the Brits with their mineral extraction, and then apartheid systems. So those are still in place insofar that the core migrant labor, where women back in the rural areas are making those men come to work less expensively than if they were living in the city. Those systems, we call those super exploitative systems. And if I go back to Rosa Luxemburg, she was a great German in uh, uh, 1910, figured this out. But my favorite writer about this, I've just done a big tribute to, uh, Vusi Kumalo, who's the uh, former aide to uh, President uh, Mbeki, has put a Politicon, political science journal uh, special issue together. It's just come out this week um, about Samir Amin. Now, Samir was uh, mostly in his career in Senegal, and he really figured this out. And he said, look, for South Africa to have the extraction of free minerals and to have this cheap labor system based on race, this made South Africa a favorite of the West for, uh, well, centuries. And that was a system that he called sub-imperialism. And I don't think we've broken enough. Although last Thursday, it makes me rethink it was a fantastic day for South Africa to say, no, we won't be part of this system. Yeah. Okay. And uh, as we wind down the conversation, and it's much bigger than just what 25 minutes will allow us, if you're going to reorder the world in whatever formation, based on whatever ideological or trade links, you also then need the grouping to be able to harness some sort of global security nexus. I don't know if I'm using the right terminology. So you need to be able to resolve crises. And you need to be able to resolve crises because you've either got the boots that you can mobilize on ground, you have the weaponry, uh, and you must have the moral weight. So what we saw last week is South Africa saying, we might not have many other things, but we believe we do have the moral uh, suasion on this one and we're going to convince the rest of the world about values and ethics but other things are needed to keep the global peace uh, can these new formations do that well the BRICS certainly can't because it's full of dictators and uh, uh, carbon addicted uh, you know tyrannies that uh, have extreme inequality hardwired and their role in the world system so far as I say hasn't been to challenge global power, multilaterals like the World Bank, IMF, WTO, and UNFCCC, the climate meetings, they've gone along. They've been sub-imperial, not anti-imperial. So what you said was perfect, that last week, South Africa went to the rest of the world, to civil society, to public opinion. And I reckon that was the right thing to do um, because it spurred such soul searching. And I happened to be in Berlin and the protests on Friday and Saturday after uh, the official German government joining with Israel to endorse the genocide effectively, that was really reacted to by outrage here. So this is one of those moments where um, it's not really about relying entirely upon uh, interstate uh, collaboration, given, I would say, maybe only the Colombian uh, government, which has a very interesting uh, leader named Gustavo Petro as probably the sort of 
you know, next great international leader, maybe Lula in Brazil, a few others. But really, it would be what we've done in civil society. So that example of AIDS medicines, which our treatment action campaign, which uh, Zaki Ahmed and Vilyaseka Dabula and all their wonderful activists were able to motivate the rest of the world to say in the World Trade Organization, oh, come on, give intellectual property a waiver so that tens of millions of people can live. That's our, in a way our model, isn't it, for a globalization from below and at a time with pandemics and inequality and eco-catastrophes and extreme uh, geopolitical tension um, and such injustices that are on display at the World Economic Forum as we speak, no structural changes proposed. You know, we have to go back to some of those very hopeful moments where South Africans have been at the lead, tossing out an apartheid regime with the solidarity of the world, people around the world fighting their own internal businessmen and corporate elites and leaders who were in league with apartheid and winning. Yeah. That's what I think we we went from yeah. this. Yeah. So what I'm hearing you say as we say goodbye to you, Patrick Bond, is to say sometimes you might not have the financial muscle, the deep pockets, you might not have the military prowess, but you have the uh, confidence of your convictions, you have your ethical codes, and sometimes that's the only thing you can bring to the table and must bring to the table. And we must, and that's what uh, so many people think of as uh, the Mandela legacy, sitting in jail 27 years, but having world support to fight an injustice and calling on all of us to, uh, to to push not for some compromise, but for one person, one vote in a democratic state. I think that's what it's going to take, but at a global scale and with uh, a wonderful resurgence of uh, the moral conscience where um, it's felt very good to be from South Africa, hasn't it, the last yeah, uh, uh, few days? Yeah. Completely. Thank you so much for your time, Professor Patrick Bond. Just telling us in this era uh, why it's difficult to create a brand new world order entrenched systems but the values can change you've been listening to a power 98.7 podcast for more podcasts visit power987.co.za or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts